you have your copy of Scripture, if you'll turn to the book of Jude. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series this week on the book of Jude and, and contending for the faith. Um, I know a lot of times we hear that word contending for the faith and we think it's fighting and that's part of it. But the reality is contending for the faith is knowing what you believe and why you believe it. And being able to vocalize those things into a world that has no clue what they believe. Jude was dealing with a, a problem. There were people inside the church and outside the church that were leading people astray. And this is very personal for me because I've had that happen in my life. We, we need to understand that what we believe matters, what we teach matters, what we live matters. And when we see people that are hearing things and believing things that are leading them astray, we need to step in to their life. And here's why it's personal for me. My uncle Wayne grew up in a Christian home, professed faith early in his life, lived as a Christian until his mid-30s. He met a guy who was just leaving seminary, who had said that God had called him in a ministry, God had called him to seminary. And when he got to seminary, that God spoke to him and told him that everything in the Bible was false. God also told him that you can't believe anything that the Apostle Paul wrote because the Apostle Paul was an epileptic and he had seizures and that's why he had visions. And so all of this stuff is just bunk. And that guy left seminary and he walked away from Jesus and he walked away from the church and began to talk to my uncle and share these things with him. And my uncle said, you know what? That sounds good. You know what? I've, I've had questions like that. I, I've wondered that too. And now you've answered my questions. And he walked away. I'd like to say that he walked away to a better life, that his life got better for him and, you know, he didn't deal with so many things in his life, but actually it was the opposite of that. <clears throat> when my uncle threw off his faith in Christ, he didn't become free. He actually became more enslaved than he'd ever been. He walked into bitterness and anger and immorality and he's still not out of it. And I wish I had known then what I know now, that I could have been able to speak into his life, but I, but I didn't. I was super young when it happened. And, you know, ever since then, I've tried to be a faithful witness to him who loves him and encourages him and just reminds him of the gospel. But see, here's the reality. What we believe has consequences. What we believe about God, what we believe about his word, what we believe about who we are in Christ and what we've been given by Christ has consequences. It has impact in our life. Now, as we get started, we're going to read in just a second. But I want to give you a little background. Jude uh, wrote this book about 30 to 40 years after Jesus died. And Jude actually was the half-brother of Jesus. He was along with James, one of the brothers of Jesus, and Jude struggled with his faith in Jesus too. Would it surprise you to know that Jude and James both didn't believe in Jesus? In fact, there are several times we see in the Gospels where they come to get Jesus because they think he's gone a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But something changed everything. Something changed everything for Jude, and you know what that something was? The resurrection. When he saw his brother resurrected and he had conquered death, he believed. 
And not only did he believe, but he became a traveling preacher, a traveling missionary with Paul and some of the other disciples. And he was traveling around preaching and teaching, but he was really concerned about his Jewish brothers and sisters who had come to faith in Christ. And so he wrote this book after his brother James was martyred because there were people creeping into the church trying to lead the, the people, the Jewish people away. In fact, you see this in Galatians, Paul deals with the same group of people. They would come in and say stuff like this. Hey, I'm so glad you believe in Jesus, but do you know there's a whole lot of other stuff that you missed? It's not enough that you believe in Jesus. You've got to add all these things on top of it because if you don't add all these things on top of it, you're not going to heaven. And they would say, well, how do you know that? Paul didn't teach us that. Jesus didn't teach us that. Oh, well, here's the thing. We got secret knowledge that you didn't get. And if you'll come... And let me teach you, I'll teach you all the secrets that I know, and you can have faith just like me. So Jude saw what was happening and was scared that people might miss Jesus like he almost did. I, I think that impacted Jude's life so much because he grew up and understood the Pharisees' teaching, and he listened to the Pharisees, and he followed the Pharisees, and by doing that, he almost missed what was right in front of his face. Actually, what had been in front of his face since he was a little child, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jude says, listen, I don't, I don't want anybody to miss Jesus. And he writes this letter. He writes this letter to tell them about being careful with false teaching, to be careful who you're listening to, to be careful to check into the word and make sure that what people are telling you lines up with what Jesus said. He warns them against immorality because here's the thing, when we get into false teaching, immorality follows because here's what they'll say. There are no standards. There are no rules. God doesn't care. You can do what you want, when you want, how you want, and it's all okay. He says, I want to warn you. God does care about how you live. But the reason that Jude wrote this was to give hope and help to people that he loved. And that's why we're doing Jude today in the next few weeks. I want to give you hope and help because I love you. And I want you to not be caught off guard the way that I was when someone that I love dearly began to believe things, began to live in ways that were completely against who God is and what God desires for their life, to be able to step into their life and say, hey, I love you. Let me tell you the truth. And what we're going to find as we go through this book that contending for the faith really means more than just spouting off doctrines and shouting at people. It means being transformed yourself, living the truth yourself, and speaking the truth in love. So let's read Jude's words, and we're going to start to unpack them each week. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. 
for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, though, that you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day, for the judgment of that great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. There are, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Have mercy on some who are doubting, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glorious, glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, there's a lot of things in there that you may not understood and may seem foreign, and we'll unpack those in another day. But today, we really want to focus on two verses. We want to focus on verses one and two. Jude is coming to people that he loves, and he wants to make very clear that they understand who they are in Christ and what they've been given in Christ. And I want to read those to you again. I want you just to listen to them. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, be beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
Now, I want you to see this. This is a very powerful truth. Jude basically gives us the gospel in two short verses. In fact, what happens is he's using words that we know, they're common words in the church. And so what happens is when we hear these words, we just move on past them to find more important stuff. And the reality is we really need to slow down and understand what Jude is saying because he's packed so much truth in these two verses that we could stay here for a long time. Once you hear what he says, he says, you are called, you are loved by God the Father, and you are kept by Christ the Son. And may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. I don't know any better things to think about on a day like today than those six things. We're called, we're loved by God the Father, we're kept by Christ the Son, and that mercy and peace and love are available to us at all times. So here's what he says. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know who you are in Christ. And the reason he starts here is important because this is exactly where our enemy goes to make us doubt God. We know who we are. We are very familiar with who we are and what we do and what we think and what we say and what we don't say, right? And because of that, we have thoughts about ourselves. And we think things like this, well, I'm just useless and I am worthless and I'm no good and God can't love me because of who I am and what I do. And why would God ever use me because of who I am and what I do? And so the enemy plays on that. He hits us at one of our weak points. We know who we are and he knows who we are. But there's a problem. We don't listen to the scripture when it tells us who we are in Christ. All the things that I think about myself and all the things that you think about yourself are true if you weren't a believer in Jesus. All the places that I look at and I fail and all the places that I look at and I struggle and all the things that I have fears and doubts and things, I'm like, yeah, that's true. But not if I'm a believer in Jesus. See, we say things and we sing things, we just don't believe things. Here's who you are in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Right there it is. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, They are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Is it true? Is it true? If it's true, why don't we believe that about ourselves? Why don't we live that way for ourselves? And so Jude wants to anchor us in the truth because when we are anchored in the truth of who we are in Christ, it is very difficult to pull us away from Jesus. When we know who we are in Jesus, our enemy cannot lie to us and say, you're this, because you'll say, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation. So what does it look like to be a new creation? What does it look like to be who you are in Christ? Well, the first thing that Jude says is that you are a slave. 
Jude, a bondservant of Jesus. Now, I know that we do not like to use the word slave. It brings up a bad connotation and it has bad implications for our country and the things that have happened in the past. But here's what he's saying. The reality is our relationship to Jesus is much like what have happened in the old days. We were bought out of slavery. This is what this is talking about. We are a bondservant. We are a slave of Jesus. Why? Because he purchased us. And what this is talking about, who you are in Christ, it talks about the relationship, the intimacy, and the price that was paid for Jesus to bring you into his family. See, we like to think about that we have asked Jesus into our heart or we've confessed Christ as our Savior, and that's important. But here's the reality. What had to happen for us to be able to do that? Jesus had to purchase us. You are a slave, you are not your own. Who you are in Christ, you are Christ's. In fact, in Galatians 2.20, here's what it tells us. I have been crucified in Christ, I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who you are in Christ means the old you and the old desires and the old control is gone and now Jesus lives in you and you have a completely new life. You died, he lives. You are a slave, you are not your own because Christ gave his life as a ransom for you says it many places, but Jesus, in Matthew 20, verse 28, it said that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. Christ gave his life as a ransom. Christ paid a debt to set you free. He ransomed his life for your life. Not only did he ransom our life, but we find out that we are redeemed by Christ's precious blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. You were not redeemed by works. You were not redeemed by gold. You were not redeemed by silver. You were redeemed by the precious blood of God himself. See, this is important and it's powerful because when you come to understand the price that God paid to deliver you, you're much less likely to give in to all the nonsense that this other stuff has to offer. If God was willing to shed his precious, innocent, perfect blood for you, we need to wake up and take notice. You're a slave, you're not your own. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It says to honor God with your body because you were bought at a price. You are not your own. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is who you are in Christ. You've been ransomed. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus and now you are the very temple of God. 
This is why it makes no sense that we put all of our hope in a building and say that's the church. No, if you have Jesus in you, you are the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself dwells inside of us. Now maybe you're thinking, wow, that's a lot. We hadn't even scratched the surface. You need to know who you are in Christ Jesus because when you know who you are in Christ Jesus, there is no offer out there that you will accept. You're called. You have been called. Now, this is a, a past word. It's something that's happened in the past. And here's what happened in the past. There's a settled fact that happened in the past that you have nothing to do with. You have no part of. It happened outside of you, but for you. And here's the settled fact. God saved you. God saved you. You're called. God made a choice to save and to bless us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Before God created anything, before anything ever happened, God says, I know what's going to happen. You're going to rebel against me. You're going to sin against me and you're going to fall and I'm going to have to redeem you. And I make the choice now to say yes. He made a choice before there was ever a heartbeat, before there was ever a breath, before there was ever a sin. He said, I'm going to make a choice to save and to bless. In Ephesians 1, it says that God has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings that come in Christ Jesus because in love, he chose to save and make us children. God made a choice. You've been called. God made a choice. And in that choice, here's what he did. God exchanged places with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Here's what that means. God changes places with us. You're called. What God does that? What God says, I'm willing to step off my throne relinquish my control of the universe and come and take your place so that I can die and pay for your sin, for your shame, for your fear, for your faults, for your doubts. Well, God does that. The one true living God. You've been called. He made a choice. He changed places. And God nailed all our sin to Jesus's cross. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He made a choice. He took our place. And forever, he gives this very stark reminder of what happened to our sin. We see when the nails were driven through his hands and through his feet, God nailed our sin to the cross. And when God nailed our sin to the cross, it can't come back. When Jesus died for our sin, he took our sin to the grave and it cannot come back. You've been called. It's a settled fact. It's a settled fact that God did all of these things and you had nothing to do with it and you can't earn it and you can't work for it. He just did it. 
And then here's what he invites you to. Here's the calling. God wants to make you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Colossians 1.21. Here's the calling. Enter into what I want for you. Enter in a relationship with me and I will make you holy. I'll make you blameless. I'll make you above suspicion or above accusation. You are called. And people ask me all the time, who's the gospel for? It's for everyone. It's for everyone. Who does God want to save? Everyone. Regardless of lifestyle, regardless of background, regardless of nationality, regardless of sin, God wants to save everyone. And here's the offer that he's made. Jesus died for everyone and the gospel goes to everyone. And so here it is. If you want to know you're called, here it is. God's called you because he wants to save you. And he's done everything that needs to be done. All you need to do is say yes. You need to know who you are in Christ. You're a slave. You've been called, but you're also, you are loved. You are loved. I don't know if you hear that enough. I don't know if the people in your life that count tell you that enough, but I want you to hear it from me today. You are loved. But really, I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to hear it from the one who said it. You are loved by God the Father. Listen to that. You are loved by God the Father. The creator of this universe knows who you are. The one who keeps everything spinning the way it should knows your name. The one who sees everything and knows everything loves you. You are loved by God. And here's the thing you need to hear. The reality of the fact that you are loved by God never changes. Because you are in Christ, because you have been made new, because you have been forgiven of your sins, because God has wiped away and paid your debt, you are now in Christ and you are loved and that will never change. God will never love you any more than he does right now. And God will never love you any less than he does right now. God loves you to the maximum, to the fullest, overwhelming, abundant, everlasting love. And it will not change. You are loved. And the reason we know that and believe that is because he loved us first. 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. See, here's the real truth. God has loved us every moment of our life. In fact, God loved us before we ever were us. And God will love us into eternity. In fact, here's one of the things that makes things so tough. God will even love us when we're in hell. So we don't think about those things. We think that God hates the people in hell and he's so thankful to there. He, no, he does not. He takes no joy in the death of the wicked. In fact, he still loves those people. There's never a time when God's love for us is broken. He loves first. 
And not only does he love us first, but he has demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5, 8 and John 3, 16. Listen, love has become a word that we throw around. Love is easy to say and it's hard to do. Um, when I was growing up, there was a great band called DC Talk. Maybe you guys have heard of them. Now, I loved early DC Talk. I loved all of it, but I loved early DC Talk. And one of the early songs that I love is Love is a Verb. That's the name of the song, Love is a Verb. What does that mean? It's a verb because it's an action word. and It has to have action behind it. And so here's the thing. God just can't say, I love you, and then do nothing. And so in Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God says, listen, I want to show you how much I love you. And I'm going to make it so clear and so undeniable that you can never deny it and you can never forget it. And here it is. I'm going to come down. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to die for you when you're at your worst. I'm going to die for you when you're the farthest from me. I'm going to die for you when you don't even want to love me or hear about me. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. Isn't it wonderful? But here's the reality. We've twisted that. And here's what the gospel seems to a lot of people. We have to show God how much we love him so that he'll do something for us. And that's not the gospel. You need to know who you are in Christ. You are loved. And God demonstrated his love for you and never asked you to demonstrate your love for him. How about John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You're loved. But the problem is we don't know that or we don't believe it. John in 1 John 4 verse 16 says, we've come to know and to believe God's love for us. And when we come to know and believe God's love for us, that that love casts out fear because when you are in perfect love, there is no fear. Do you know that you're loved? Do you know that God loves you, that he's demonstrated his love for you? Have you come to believe that? Until you do, you're going to be enticed by all the things the world has to offer and all the, the stuff that people want to sell you about what a good life looks like and how you can follow Jesus and not be part of the church or you don't have to be really, you know, spiritual and you don't have to change your life. It's when you come to know God's love and believe God's love that transformation happens. You need to know who you are in Christ And here's who you are. You are kept. You're kept for Jesus Christ. This is a future promise that has immediate results. It is a hope for our future. It is a hope of God's protection. It is a promise of God's work in our life. And here's what it says. You are kept. Now, we use a lot of terms, but here's what it means. There is security in your faith. There is security in your salvation. There is security in your future because God is keeping you for Jesus. 
Now, I know that there are a lot of denominations that don't like the term security of the believer. They don't like to to think that you can't lose your salvation. But here's the reality. It makes no sense for Jesus to shed his blood to cover people's sins and save them from their sins for them only to get themselves back into the mess they were in before and fall away and go to hell. What use is that? It makes no sense that God would empty heaven of what makes heaven to send him to die for only to be lost again. And so here's what security of the believer means. When you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. You are in Christ forever and no one can snatch you out of his hands. No one. We are kept. We're kept because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul tells us that the moment that we come to faith in Jesus, something amazing happens to us. We are made new. The spirit comes in. And when the spirit comes in, he washes us from the inside out. He cleanses us and makes us new. But then he also seals us. He seals us. Now, when we hear seal, we think like glad Ziploc bags. That's not the same kind of seal. The seal they're talking about was in the ancient world and it was a seal that was created to show the power and the authority of the person making the seal. It's sealed documents, it's sealed letters, it showed that this is from the hand of that person. And so here's what this means. God has stamped us, God has marked us with the Holy Spirit and because he's marked us with the Holy Spirit, we will never be lost. And the second part of that is not only is the Holy Spirit a seal, he's a deposit. God has invested himself in us and he expects a return. God has invested himself in us and here's what he guarantees. There will be a return and that return is you will go home to be with him forever and enjoy the rewards that he has for you forever because you've been stamped and deposited and it can never be taken away. And I'm thankful for that because I'm bonehead. I, I still get myself into messes. I still struggle. I still have sin. I still do all these kind of things. And even when I feel like that I have blown my life up and I have royally messed it up, I can go back to the honest truth that reminds me that this is a settled fact that God did everything for me and I didn't do anything. And he stamped me with the Holy Spirit. He's deposited the Holy Spirit inside of me and I will make it not because I'm good, but because he's good. We've been sealed. And we're secure. We are secure in God's hands and Jesus' hands. In John 10, 28 through 30, Jesus talks about that he gives eternal life to the people who believe in him. And when they believe in him, he does this wonderful thing. He takes and puts them in the palm of his hand and he closes his hand. And he says, You're mine. You're mine. And no one can snatch you out of my hand. And he says, and just in case you're worried that I'm not strong enough, there's an extra layer of protection for you. My father, who has given you to me, has taken his hand and put it over top of my hand. And no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. 
If you ever worry that you're not going to make it, if you ever worry that your life is too far gone, remember this, you were put into the hand of Jesus by Jesus, who then put his hand in the hand of his father who closes around. Now tell me, how are you going to get out of that? We're secure. You are kept. You're sealed, you're secure, but also God will complete the work he started in you. Philippians 1.6. Paul looks at his life and here's what he says. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, we, we think that God only cares about the prayer of faith, that God's only active in the moment that we come to, to, to be his child. No, what happens is God starts a work in you that's his work that he's doing and he guarantees that he's gonna do it until the end. He's going to complete it. Doesn't that give you hope? It should. You need to know who you are in Christ You are loved, you are kept, and because you're kept, God is gonna complete the work that he started. You are kept, and part of that means that your inheritance that God has promised you is protected by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, three through five. He says, our inheritance has been reserved in heaven for us, kept by the power of God, and it will never spoil, it will never fade, it will never disappear. Here's the truth that you need to understand. The moment you come to faith in Jesus, God creates an inheritance in heaven for you. That that inheritance is there and it's never going to be taken away. You're not going to get there in heaven and you're not going to see your inheritance and go, I thought it was going to be bigger. I thought it was going to be better. It, it looks so small and it looks like the, 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 the stuff is spoiled and it's, it's, it's no, well, I, I just don't get it. No. When you get to heaven and you see the inheritance that he has for you, it will be bright and as shiny as it was the moment that he put it there. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's protected by God's power and not your goodness. You are kept because the promise that's been made is this. All these things translate to one thing. You will be transformed into the image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18. See, this is the hope. This is the promise that one day when we go from this life and we enter into eternity and we stand before God, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what's going to happen. When we see Jesus, we are going to reflect him back to him. Why? Why? because he made it happen. He's transformed us so much. And then when we get translated into glory, when we go into heaven and we receive our resurrected bodies, we will reflect back to him who he is. It's not enough to know who you are, but you must know what you've been given by Christ. This is another thing that our enemy likes to attack us in because Here's the reality. We all have the same fear, and here's the fear. That God is holding out on us. It's the fear that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's what uh, the serpent, um, he attacked and manipulated. Here's our fear. 
that God has good things that he's holding back from us. We're afraid of it. We're afraid that he's not going to bless us. We're afraid that he's not going to answer our prayers. We're afraid that his plans are not going to be our plans. We're afraid that, you know, what he wants for us is going to be too much. And so we're just afraid. And so false teaching and enemies come in and they say, listen, God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you and he's keeping you from having fun. And we want to give you the the freedom to go be and have fun and do all the things that you want to do because God is holding out on you. Hmm. If God was holding out on us, why did he give us Jesus? If God was holding out on us, why did he give us Jesus? In the book of Romans, it tells us in Romans chapter 8, if God did not withhold his son, why would you believe that he would withhold any good thing from you? He's already given you the best He's already given you the most perfect thing. He's already given you your, 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 whole, your heart and soul's desire. He's given you Jesus. Why would you think he's going to withhold joy or comfort or peace? But that's what we believe. And you need to know what you've been given. God has given you everything in Jesus. And also it says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that he's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, we're going to cover these really quick. And he focuses on three things, but I mean, there's a bunch of things that God's given us. But listen to these three. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He's given us abundant mercy. And abundant mercy means that we will never be consumed by our fear, we will never be consumed by our sin, we will never be consumed by death, we'll never be consumed by hell because God's mercy is too great. Here's what his mercy does and this is why you need to rest in what you've been given. His mercy chases after you every day. Psalm 23, six tells us that God's love and God's mercy chases after us every day. Now, as great as that is to think about God's mercy chasing after us, here's a problem. Why is God's mercy chasing after us? Because we're running. We're running from him and his mercy is chasing us down to stop us. His mercy is new every morning. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in Lamentations that God gives us all the grace and all the mercy and all the love and all the joy that we need for today. And he wants us to exhaust all of it because when we wake up tomorrow, guess what? We got it all over again. And the day after that and the day after that and the day after that, his mercy is new every morning. And his mercy never fails. You ever thought about that? God's mercy never fails to accomplish the job that it was given. Know what you've been given by Christ. Certain peace. Don't raise your hand, but I want you to think about this. If I could guarantee you that you would have certain peace in your life that could never be taken away, would you want it? I mean, absolute, certain, rock solid peace. Would you want it? This is what Jesus offers. 
Now we have a bad misunderstanding of what peace really looks like. Peace for us is the absence of problems and circumstances. And that's not true. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And here's the great word. Jesus has already given it to you because he's given it in you himself. Here is the absolute certain peace that you can have in your life. That Christ made peace through the blood of his cross with God for us. Colossians 1.20. For a lot of years of my life, I didn't understand the gospel. I believed in Jesus. I believed what he did for me. But I just worried that God was still mad at me. And it was verses like this and other teaching that I found in the Bible that said, no need to worry. You are at peace with God, or rather God is at peace with you because Jesus made peace. We can have certain peace because Jesus gives his peace to live inside of us. In John 14, 26 and 27, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna remind us of the truth. He's gonna lead us in the truth. He's gonna tell us everything that Jesus said. And then Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And I struggled with that for a long time. What is he talking about? What peace? How do we get it? I wanna know. Put the verses together. I'm sending the Holy Spirit and he's going to come and live inside of you. And he's going to remind you of who I am and what I've said. And then my peace. I want to tell you something shocking that you may not agree with. But Jesus has already given you all the peace that you will ever need for this entire earth. When he gave you the Holy Spirit. He's given you all the peace you'll ever need. You don't need any more. Certain peace means letting his peace rule in us. Colossians 3.15. See, that's really the problem, isn't it? It's not that we need more peace or we don't have peace. We don't let his peace rule in us. And what that means is let the Holy Spirit speak and move and work. So we have mercy, we have peace, and now we have everlasting and unconditional love. Oh, there's that love word again. You are loved by God and you are kept by God in love. And here's the love that God gives us. This is a few short things. This doesn't cover everything, but here's how we have the everlasting and unconditional love of God in our life and we're kept by it. We have full access to God for help and for grace. Hebrews 4.16. God loves you so much and he has filled your life with love that here's what you need to hear, that any moment at any time and any place, you can walk into the throne room of God and ask for help and grace for your time of need. The door isn't locked. There's no guard at the door. The doors are wide open. The father's on the throne saying, come, come anytime you want. And the son's at the right hand praying that we would come anytime that we want. And here's the love that God has for you. He says, my child, you can have my undivided attention anytime you want. You can come in, you can call out to me, and you can tell me you need help, and you can tell me you need grace, and I will help you in your time of need. That's love. God's actively working in our life. And he will never leave us or forsake us.
Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk a lot about false teaching, what that looks like and how to find out when someone's telling you stuff that's not right. But today I felt like we really needed to kind of hammer in on what the truth really is. And here's the truth. God loves you. And in Christ, God has made you completely new and has given you so much. God is not withholding anything from you. So here's the question for us. What are we doing with it? What are we doing? Do we come and we nod on Sunday morning? Mm, that's good. I really like that. And then we leave and forget. Do we come and maybe we feel a little convicted and say, ow, that, that kind of hurt. And then we forget. Do we come and the Lord is calling and saying, now's the time. Now's the time. I want you to be my child. And we say, well, not today. Or we sit with our arms folded and we think, this isn't for me. I'm, I see all these hypocrites. I know, I know people out there in the world. I know who they are. I know what they do outside the church. See, here's a, little, here's a little thing you need to know. The church is full of hypocrites because it's full of people. The church is full of sinners because it's full of people. And this is exactly where God wants us. So guess what? If you're a hypocrite, welcome home. If you're a sinner, welcome home. But it can change. You can be made new. God is asking you to say yes. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can come to you and be made new. We thank you that, that you have given us this powerful truth of how you love us and what you've done for us. And I pray today, maybe this has helped someone Maybe it's helped them to recognize that, that you are closer, that you are more powerful, that you are more loving than they ever gave you credit for. So Father, today, give us our grace. Give us the grace to say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.